Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, Emancipation Day in Florida is May 20th, not June 19th. Let's keep history as it happened. That is a critical tool to not only our school children, our young people, but my experience, and I say it with great passion, it helps us to get along better. We'll discuss advertisements seeking to locate runaway slaves. Descriptions of runaways are informative. Skin color can be quite descriptive with a range of hues beyond simply black or dark. And we'll talk about life in Spanish missions in Florida. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. One day when the glory comes, it will be ours, it will be When the war is won, we will be sure, we will be sure, oh, glory, 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 oh, glory, glory. On January 1st, 1863, Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation, freeing enslaved people in the southern states. The order would not go into effect until after the Civil War ended. On May 20, 1865, General McCook stood on the steps of what is now the Knott House Museum in Tallahassee and read the Emancipation Proclamation. A few blocks away at the Florida State Capitol, the Confederate flag was lowered and the Union flag was raised. A few weeks later, on June 19, 1865, enslaved people in Galveston, Texas, finally got the word that slaves in the former Confederate states were now free. In recent decades, there has been a national movement to have Juneteenth, or June 19th, recognized as a National Emancipation Day. Althamese Barnes is founder of the Florida African American Heritage Preservation Network and remembers celebrating Florida's Emancipation Day as a child. That is correct. I grew up in the May 20th celebrations. In fact, from the day that I knew myself, we would go back into the country where my parents came from and attend these celebrations to kind of go back a little bit my great-grandparents were in slavery. And of course, they passed down the stories to their parents and then to my mother and father. My, my father, after slavery and everything moved along, became a sharecropper. He was a member of a sharecropper family. And my mother on Wheelani Plantation in Tallahassee. And then my mother's father was caretaker over on Waverly Plantation. So my parents believed a lot in educating and making sure we knew why things were happening as they were not in a bitter way, but just so we would be aware. 
And in fact, until fifth grade, I attended the uh, Griffin School that was founded by the Black Primitive Baptists. And we always were out on May 20th. People didn't come to work. My father didn't go to work. Other Blacks in the community, that was the day to take off, prepare, and go back into the country to celebrate. So it's always been a part of my life. I also knew that not only were we, that was that happening in Tallahassee, but because I came from such a large family, there were 12 on my mother's side as far as her siblings, seven on my father's side, they moved to other parts of the state and they too were involved in celebrating the Emancipation Proclamation. So to be honest, I didn't hear about June 19th to really internalize it or pay that much attention probably until within the last three to four or five years at best. Through the Florida African American Heritage Preservation Network, Althemese Barnes is leading an effort to have the date May 20th, 1865, officially recognized as Emancipation Day in Florida. Jarvis Rozier is Civil War Heritage Coordinator for the John G. Riley Center and Museum for African American History and Culture. He explains the complex process of ending slavery in the United States. All the slaves were not freed until the 13th Amendment, December 6, 1865. When Juneteenth came about, the falsehood that all slaves were free, that still Delaware and Kentucky still held their slaves until the Emancipation Proclamation, parts of territories in Oklahoma as well. It was said that Texas was the last of the states, seven states in rebellion, which is true, but it's not the last state that held their slaves. But Florida has always been representing that in the Emancipation Proclamation. I remember planning the Maypole. We've always celebrated. I think it's been celebrated here in Tallahassee since 1867. I think it was bars. Remember, at Bull Pond, which is called Lake Ella here now, they celebrated that in 1867. They waited two, a year after just to make sure. But it's been celebrated every year. And each year we do the celebration with the commemoration at the cemetery that we mentioned, where my unit does 21-gun salute. And we play taps to commemorate those soldiers that gave so much. And also we do the reading of the reenactment at the Nod House where General McCook came down on May 10th and read the Emancipation on the 20th. So the history that we're talking about, it would be sad to see our grandchildren look back at our history and say, why is there Juneteenth and we're celebrating May 20th? Juneteenth is a good catchphrase. And that's what it is. And it, it just started catching on throughout the country. That's no problem. Have a picnic, have a cookout, celebrate your history. But we in Florida should be celebrating May 20th, which is our actual holiday. And it, um, it would be kind of uh, sad if we move forward and celebrate another state's holiday and overlook our own. So it's important that we recognize Emancipation Day of May 20th in Florida. Bill Gary is president of the Harry T. and Harriet V. Moore Cultural Complex, a member of the Florida African American Heritage Preservation Network. I think it's important that um, as we uh, have moved into this era of reconciliation and also recognizing the history of all people who have contributed to this country, is that one of the things that we have to do is make sure or ensure that history is accurate. As uh, Mr. Rosia uh, mentioned earlier, we are teaching our young people, our students, and certainly we want to teach them the accurate history of our state there. Yes, Juneteenth has a history in the state of Texas and it's recognized there, but we have a history also. And so students in the state of Florida and adults in the state of Florida need to know 
that May 20th is the emancipation date for those persons who were enslaved in the state of Florida there. It is very important, I believe, that history is portrayed accurately. We know now that so much of the history relating to African-Americans really have been left out of history books and have been distorted in some cases. So now this is an opportunity for those of us who believe in historical facts to fight to make sure that the history is portrayed accurately. Bob Holliday is president of the Tallahassee Historical Society. He advocates for education and history-related issues to the Florida State Legislature, including accurately recognizing Florida's Emancipation Day as May 20th. The May 20th event in Tallahassee is a unifying community event. I mean, there are Black people there and white people there, and it's a unifying event. And as Althamese said, yeah, you don't try to pretend the darker side of our history did not happen, but this helps us recognize that and move past it. I mean, it's all American history. I mean, it, it is all American history, and, and it matters. Jarvis Rozier. The problem that we have with the um, Juneteenth, like I said, it's a catchphrase. But just to weigh in on that, December 6th, if we remember when the Emancipation was, uh, Proclamation was signed, there were four border states that did not include that, Missouri, Kentucky, Delaware, and Maryland. Delaware and Kentucky were the last of the slaveholding states. We can work on a compromise, like Ms. Bonds was saying, they're talking about May 20th and Juneteenth, but we can't leave the wording in there to say, I guess I'm just stuck on history, being correct. June 19th was when all slaves were freed. It's just not correct. And that would be a disservice to all those who gave it all. Like I said, slavery didn't die by natural death. It died by over 622,000 lives that were lost during the Civil War. By the end of the Civil War, it did become about war, about slavery. So I guess I'm stuck on that part as well, that we can't leave that wording in there, that we can say something that Texas was the last of the slave holding states who are in rebellion. Wording has to be correct when we document history and make it a law. Efforts to officially recognize both Juneteenth and Florida's Emancipation Day of May 20th are making their way through Florida's legislative process. Althamese Barnes is working toward historical accuracy in the pending legislation. Let's keep history as it happened. That is a critical tool to not only our school children, our young people, but my experience, and I say it with great passion, it helps us to get along better. For more discussion about Emancipation Day in Florida, go to myfloridahistory.org, find the 2021 Virtual Public History Forum, and click on the Emancipation Day session. This is Florida Frontiers. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit myfloridahistory.org to find out about the first in-person Florida Historical Society conference since May 2019. It's the Florida Historical Society Public History Forum together with the Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings Society Conference May 19th through 21st in Gainesville. 
More information is at myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Connie Lester, Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Connie, in the past, the great man method of looking at history was prevalent, but in more recent decades, historians have become more interested in the lives of everyday people. Researching that history can be challenging, though. Indeed it can. An old political truism says that all politics are local. The same may be said for history, but like politics, engaging with the local requires intense research and commitment. The last 50 years has produced the commitment and the research tools that enable the writing of history of ordinary people. The most difficult historical figures to research are those who seemingly left no records, or at least their records are non-traditional. Rather than diaries and letters, speeches and sermons, their lives appear in material culture objects, in census and court records, and sometimes in documents that are well known but remained difficult to analyze until digital tools made them searchable. The lives of the millions of enslaved men and women who lived and labored in the British American colonies and in the early United States are examples of histories that have generally remained inaccessible using traditional methods. Even finding the names of individuals can be frustratingly difficult. The so-called slave schedules for southern plantations listed the number of slaves and their ages, but frequently omitted the names of the enslaved, an omission that denied their individuality. The one artifact that always includes the name is the public advertisements for the return of a runaway slave. In addition to the name, the notice included a physical description and other bits of information to assist in locating the individual. The newspaper advertisements and printed notices became a source of extensive research when digitization projects made large collections of newspapers publicly accessible over the last two decades. With easier access to the sources and computer assistance in organizing and categorizing the materials, Historians can now find patterns in these collections that tell us much more about the lives of the enslaved. Connie, give us some examples of what information can be found in these runaway slave advertisements. Matthew J. Claven, whose work on slavery in Pensacola is well known to Florida historical quarterly readers, wrote an article on runaway slave advertisements that appeared in the winter 2016 issue of the quarterly. As Claven notes, northern abolitionists viewed the volume of advertisements as evidence that white Southerners misrepresented conditions of slavery when they claimed that the enslaved were happy and contented workers, not coerced and abused laborers. The advertisements, presumably written by slaveholders or their representatives, provided physical descriptions of runaways that included information about branding, scars, signs of repeated whippings, and evidence of major injuries, including amputations, thus confirming the cruelty of slavery. At the time of the publication of his article, Claven had completed the study of more than 600 advertisements for Florida runaways. 
His findings can be organized into several categories that both conform to the findings of other researchers and challenge their interpretations. First, Florida was not only a place to run from, it was a place to run to. From the Spanish colonial period until secession, slaves in other southern states viewed Florida as a potential destination. It was minimally populated with the longest coastline in the nation. Successful escapes sometimes depended on the assistance and acceptance by indigenous people who incorporated blacks into their communities. In addition, port cities like Pensacola offered the possibility of passage out of the South, an alternative to the Underground Railroad North. Clavin notes sympathetic military men and ship's captains or crews who facilitated some escapes. Captured bondsmen from Alabama and Georgia were housed in local jails awaiting return to their enslavers. Their names and enslavement information was also made public, but in the case of three men, jail proved an insecure place. As Clavin relates, Miles, Jilbo, and Bob were picked up on suspicion of being runaways and incarcerated in the St. Mark's Jail. However, Miles, who belonged to James McNeil of Montgomery, and Jilbo and Bob, who had run away from Tom Frizzle of Pike County, Alabama, escaped from the jail before anyone arrived to claim them. No information has been found to determine if they were captured again. Slaveholders often speculated on the destination of their escaped bondsmen, and Pensacola frequently appeared as the target city. As an example, Thomas Bennett of Mount Miggs, Alabama, insisted of Bill, Frank, and Virgil, I have no doubt all the above Negroes will aim for Pensacola. Unlike the experiences recorded through the Underground Railroad, Florida advertisements demonstrate that running away was not only an escape, but frequently a means to reunion. When speculating on the final destination, slaveholders noted that slaves might be headed to other parts of the South where family members resided or where the bondsmen grew up or once lived. These efforts at reunification rather than liberation speak to the strong familial ties that existed despite the pressures exerted through the institution of slavery against such connections. The decision to run away could be based on a number of factors. Men were more likely to attempt escape than women. In addition to liberation and reunion, advertisements also suggest that escapes resulted when life changes occurred on the plantation the death of the slaveholder, or economic changes that potentially included the sale of bondsmen ranked among the alterations in daily life that might induce an individual to attempt escape. Connie, what else do these runaway slave advertisements tell historians about these people? Descriptions of runaways are informative. They include size, height, hair texture, and eye color, Skin color can be quite descriptive, with a range of hues beyond simply black or dark. The demeanor of many runaways is part of the description, with some described as hostile, talkative, deceitful, or incapable of making eye contact. The clothes runaways were wearing when they escaped form part of many advertisements. Some also describe clothes or accessories they stole in what may be viewed as an effort to disguise themselves. The skills they possess are noted as a way to alert whites if unknown carpenters, boatmen, or blacksmiths attempt to find work. Some ads suggest that the bondsmen engaged in considerable planning to assure a successful escape, 
while others point to a spur-of-the-moment decision. Although most escapes did not include reported violence, there are examples of advertisements that warn of weapons. When Edmund and his pregnant wife, Rebecca, were captured after escaping from their Tallahassee owner, they set fire to the jail to escape a second time. When Loveless, his wife Pink, and their three children, five-year-old Isaac, three-year-old Ellen, and five-month-old Jane, escaped in a desperate attempt to return to North Carolina, they took an old shotgun. When Jupiter fled the house of a Pensacola physician, he took a shotgun and a hatchet. Clavin concludes, more than any other contemporary source, the ads lift the curtain on slavery in the Old South, revealing at least two important ideas worth remembering about antebellum Florida. First, they enforced the fact that slavery was a ruthless economic and social system in which white people bought, sold, and traded black men and women and children with impunity and then hunted them like animals when they tried to escape enslavement and enjoy the same rights and privileges that free people had enjoyed for generations. Second, they demonstrate that resistance to this inhumane labor system was extraordinarily widespread and that antebellum Florida, like the rest of the South, was an expansive battlefield on which black and white people contested and fought over the meanings of freedom and slavery daily. A difficult but very important history to remember and learn about. Thanks, Connie. You're welcome. Connie Lester is Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. This is Florida Frontiers. There was an extensive Spanish mission system in colonial Florida, Holly Baker has more about what life was like in a Spanish mission. By the late 17th century, there were dozens of Spanish missions in North Florida and the Panhandle. The mission's main purpose was to establish control over Native Americans by exploiting their labor and forcibly converting them to Catholicism, the religion of the Spanish colonial empire. Dr. Daniel Murphy is an associate professor of history at the University of Central Florida in Orlando. He's also the author of several articles and books, including the book Constructing Floridians, Natives and Europeans in the Colonial Floridas, 1513-1783. Dr. Murphy told me about life in a Spanish mission in Florida in the 17th and early 18th centuries. So the missions kind of, they functioned as their own little kind of independent um, villages or small settlements, but they had kind of all the components of frontier or borderlands regions. They were very self-contained. doesn't mean they were self-sufficient, because they almost always were um, lacking resources. But it was a place where if you were um, traveling, going to a mission would mean you could encounter um, an official Spanish religious presence, military presence, and even a governmental presence, not to mention the Native American community and the goods that were exchanged there. Even though the main function of the Spanish mission was to convert natives to Catholicism, the missions were also places where natives and Europeans interacted daily, at the church, in the village square, or while trading. Natives in the mission lived alongside Spanish priests, soldiers, and settlers, sometimes intermarrying. 
So if you went into the mission area, you'd have a large square, a plaza of some type, where you'd see um, some of the trading going on. You'd usually see the soldiers doing some kind of drilling, something like that. Sometimes within the walls, but often outside the walls, you would have the farming, the agricultural work going on. Compared to everything else you were encountering, if you were walking along the Florida frontier, it would probably be one of the biggest populated sites you, you would encounter. So daily life would consist of usually some kind of spiritual training on behalf of the missionaries towards the, the native peoples. And this would be something maybe like a similar to a church service today, though often it was held um, outdoors. What you'd see the most of is economic activity. Because one of the jobs of converts is while they're learning how to become Christians, they're also producing some kind of agricultural or other product for the Spanish. Almost all the Indian groups that were part of these mission systems, they had some type of arrangement where they would devote a certain type of tribute they would give to the Spanish almost as payment for converting them. For the Tamuqua, Apalachee, and other Native American people in North Florida, life at a mission village was very different from life outside it. The mission promoted a non-nomadic way of life with a focus on farming and labor. Native men were drafted to work as couriers, cattle ranchers, or river pilots, while Native women did most of the farming, gathering of food, and food preparation for the mission village. A lot of the missions you would see more Native women at any given time of the day than Native men, because the men often were either um, hunting or they were outside of the grounds doing some kind of other uh, labor on behalf of Spain or trading, something like that, whereas the women were usually the farmers themselves. But what's often lost when we emphasize that is the women were the processors of the food. So that was going on in the mission itself. But, you know, this was very stratified um, society when it came to um, gender. And one of the things the missionaries were dedicated to more than anything else was trying to impose European understandings of gender roles on the native peoples. And they had a lot of frustration with that because they, they tried to make them rigid and separate gender roles for the most part, and Native peoples typically didn't live that way and resisted it as much as they possibly could. So yes, you did have a significant Native female presence, very few uh, non-Native women in these places, except for maybe the occasional traveler. The Spanish mission system existed in Florida for more than 100 years. Due largely to diseases like smallpox brought over by the Europeans, almost all of the Spanish missions were gone by 1708. Inefficient trade systems and increased competition between England and France also led to the end of the Spanish mission. Dr. Daniel Murphy. And then at the same time, remember that the English are colonizing the 13 colonies on the eastern seaboard, and they are competing with the French, who are now in uh, Louisiana, for control of this kind of deep south region, the Alabama, Georgia region, the North Florida region. And they don't have a lot of armies, but what they're doing is they're competing through trade goods, or they're trying to outmatch each other by who had the most goods to give to the Indians to gain their allegiance. Actually, earlier in the um, 17th century, some of these English traders, some of the French, and even Spanish became um, slave traders, where they would enslave the native peoples. So at the same time you're having missionaries depopulated by disease, the remnants of those missions, or the surviving populations, are increasingly being enslaved by Europeans and by other native peoples from the north who are then selling them to a variety of places. Sometimes these uh, enslaved natives would go to the Caribbean. Sometimes they'd go to settlements farther up the, uh, say, a New England coast. But the two factors combined meant that having a mission by 1700 was very, very difficult because the numbers 
were declining, and it was becoming more and more treacherous for the missionaries themselves. They were kind of the first entities that these slavers and just these expanding uh, English and French colonists ran into. So it became just virtually impossible for the Spanish to keep the system going, and the expense, which was always a problem for the Spanish in Florida, was no longer justifiable based on the numbers that were being converted and the other issues affecting the missions. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, find us anytime at myfloridahistory.org and on Facebook. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Connie Lester and Holly Baker. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.